Nancy Pelosi goes full Marie Antoinette. Joe Biden tries desperately to answer basic questions and heads to Kenosha. And President Trump implies Americans should try to vote twice. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Stand up for your digital rights. Take action at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, it seems that there is this great vast gap that has now emerged between the so-called elites in our society and everybody else. And it's not really a partisan gap so much as it is a gap in mentality. Uh, I've said before that I think that we should be careful of labeling people elite versus elitist because there is a difference. And there are a lot of people who are elite who are not elitists. And there are a lot of people who are not particularly elite who are elitists. You know, elite can be defined in many ways. Elite can be defined economically. It can be defined intellectually. It can be defined educationally. But being an elitist is a mentality that says the rules simply don't apply to you because you are of the special ilk. You are more special than everybody else. And being an elitist also comes along with a fair amount of dissociation from things that you are not you, right? You dissociate from things that are not you. You're not like other human beings. You are better than other human beings. And this is a mentality that has set in, particularly among the coastal blue area elitists, and and it really is having a vast impact on our politics. And there's been a lot of talk in the past few years about why President Trump won in 2016. And people seem to think that it's because of a basket of economic policies. People who want to intellectualize Trump's victory, they'll say things like, well, you know, it's because he was for tariffs or because President Trump was harsh on China or because he doesn't like illegal immigration. They'll say it had something to do with policy. I think it has very, very little to do with policy and a lot to do with a feeling from many people in the middle of the country that people who are in positions of power don't really care about people like them and think that they are not held subject to the same rules. And and that is sort of the the common theme of modern American politics, is the people constantly being disappointed by politicians who suggest that they are one of the people, that they have a heart for the people, and then when it comes time to actually apply the rules, they don't apply the rules to themselves. And this is why the story of Nancy Pelosi going to get her hair blow-dried in the middle of a pandemic is, is so rich for Republicans to mind, because it does demonstrate, once again, that a lot of Democrats who claim that they have a heart for the people, they stand with the common man, and they really do not stand with the common man. And this is particularly true when it comes to COVID policy, where elitists, ranging from Neil Ferguson, the modeler in the UK, to Chris Cuomo over at CNN, to Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, to now Nancy Pelosi, believe that all of the commoners have to be pushed by the government into doing things that destroy their own businesses and their own livelihoods, that the the people have to be led by the hand, and and that, in fact, the only way to absolve yourself is to do the political bidding of the people who are setting the standard. Meanwhile, the elitists don't actually have to abide by that standard. The the, the elitists will tell you that you can't hold a funeral for your parent who died of COVID or visit a parent with COVID in the hospital, but you can definitely hold a protest about systemic, systemic American injustice. And the same people will tell you that you can't open your business or your church, but they are fully able to go to a funeral for an important political figure, or in the case of Neil Ferguson over in Britain, meet with their married lover. There there are lots of things that the elitists can do that you simply cannot do. And this is a real gap in mentality. And it is bred by a certain segment of American society that declares itself part of a meritocracy, but then takes the concept of meritocracy to the ultimate extreme, where the people who are on the top of the quote-unquote meritocracy get to run everybody else's life. See, the, the thing about a meritocracy is that you're not supposed to be able to shut the door behind you. You're not supposed to bring up the ladder behind you, the ladder that goes from the attic of the meritocracy down into the rest of the house. And yet elitists want to do exactly that because they are the top of the meritocracy. They want to shut the door behind them and then run everybody else's life from atop that pyramid. It's, I've told the story before how when I, when I first attended Harvard Law School, which is, you know, the top of the meritocracy, you only get in if you score above 172 on the LSATs, essentially, and you have a 4.0 GPA and you have a bunch of great extracurriculars. And the, the very first day that I'm at Harvard Law School, we sit down for orientation in this beautiful ballroom, looks like something out of Harry Potter. And Elena Kagan, who is then the dean of Harvard Law School, now, of course, on the Supreme Court, she gets up and she says the competition is over. Harvard Law School is the source of a bunch of Supreme Court justices. Harvard Law School is the source of X number of senators and X number of congresspeople and the sitting president of the United States. Uh, Well, at the time, it would have been uh, the future president of the United States, Barack Obama, went to Harvard Law School. Harvard Law School is the center of power. And the competition is now over. It doesn't matter how you do in this school because your opportunities are limitless in the future. You are the rulers of the universe. I believe that was the exact phrase she used. You're the rulers of the universe. Even if you don't believe it, you are. Well, that sort of Marie Antoinette feeling, 
that belief that because you are at the top of the heap, you get to run things for everybody else. That is deeply off-putting to most Americans. And that's why Nancy Pelosi, what she did here, I understand that it's not a world-breaking story, but it is indicative of, men- of a mentality that is cursing American politics and has led to tremendous splits in American life. And it does have a connection to the structure of American government. See, it's not as though ambitious politicians haven't always wanted to control people's lives. They always have. The founders recognized this. This is exactly why they set up a system of checks and balances that devolved most power to the local level. The idea was that the most ambitious, ambition would check ambition, in the words of the Federalist Papers, that checks and balances would prevent people who are ambitious from running your life. That government would, by its, its very grind, prevent people at the top from running your life. But what we have seen increasingly is a demand by the American people simultaneously that the elitists not run their life, but also that the elitists give them everything they could possibly want. And these two, I would say, gut-level reactions cannot coexist logically. They cannot operate morally. And so what you get is people electing elitists to run their life and then objecting when the elitists run their life. Well, the American people have a choice. Don't elect elitists. Don't elect elitists. And particularly, don't elect elitists who wish to wash away all of those checks and balances that actually allow you to live your life on a local level without having to worry about the Nancy Pelosi's of the world. See, I wouldn't care if Nancy Pelosi were a normal person going to get her hair did at the local hair salon. I don't care about that. In fact, I can tell you, I live in LA. LA County has been shut down for months on end. And I will tell you, there's an awful lot of bootleg nail saloning and hair is getting dead, right? I mean, that, 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 is, that is happening a lot in LA County. I, I tend to work out outdoors at, at a gym, a local gym. And a couple doors down, there is a completely papered over hair salon. And that hair salon is wide open. Right? They just papered over the front windows and people are going in every day. There's this bootleg business that's going on because it turns out people cannot survive based on the Nancy Pelosi standard. So if it were just somebody going to get their hair done, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really care. But if we're talking about people setting standards and cheering standards and, and yelling at people about their inability to follow those standards and then applying a different standard to themselves, that's a very, very different story. And that's why the Nancy Pelosi story matters because it is indicative of a broader trend in American public life, elitists running your life, getting rid of all obstacles to running your life, believing that if they have any sort of majority power, they can cram down their agenda on everybody else, but then not applying the rules to themselves. That's the part Americans are objecting to. And that really was the rebellion in favor of Donald Trump in 2016. And honestly, it's that sort of feeling that is going to drive, if Trump wins a re-election victory, it's going to drive that as well. You're seeing it in everything from Nancy Pelosi's activity to all of these ridiculous New York intellectual types who are taking pictures of themselves eating outdoors in New York going, everything's fine here. I don't see why everybody is complaining about the crime and about the economy. Everything's fine. I'm sitting right outside here drinking a fruity drink. I mean, I'm not kidding. There's a guy named Gary Steingart. And Gary Steingart literally tweeted out a picture of himself drinking a fruity drink outdoors to demonstrate that everything is totally fine. He is a quote-unquote book writer, Gary Steingart. And he, uh, he took a picture of himself outside in New York and tweeted, had to shoot my way through a whole bunch of Antifa roadblocks, but it was worth it to get this fruity drink. Okay, it's that elitist mentality that is, that is leading to this vast culture gap more than anything else. And that's partially a class gap. Well, we'll talk more about this in just one second, because we're going to get to Nancy Pelosi, who is now attempting to destroy the business. She's attempting to destroy the hair salon she went to because she would not abide by the rules that she cheers. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let's talk about the fact that you hate overpaying your phone bill. Like there, There's no reason to spend extra money on your phone bill. Think of all the money you automatically give away every month. Taxes, obviously. But then internet, cable, utilities bills, you put them on your auto pay and then you forget about them. And then you look up at the end of the year and you've spent thousands of dollars on your phone bill. AT&T, AT&T Verizon, T-Mobile, they all want to charge you for data and perks that you never use. Thankfully, there's Pure Talk USA. Pure Talk gives you the exact same coverage, same towers, same bars, but costs you half with no contract and no excessive fees. Right now, enjoy unlimited talk, text, and two gigs of data all for just 20 bucks a month. The average person is saving $400 a year on their wireless bill. So grab your mobile phone, dial pound 250, say Ben Shapiro. When you do, you'll save 250 bucks off any iPhone, including the new iPhone SE. Again, that is pound 250, say keyword Ben Shapiro to save money on your wireless bill. And you're probably spending a lot of money for data that you don't actually need. So why not pare down that bill and use the money for all sorts of goodies out there? It's just Plenty of deals out there right now that you can use that money for. So why would you waste it on your phone company? Pure Talk USA, simply smarter wireless. Again, Pure Talk USA and dial pound 250, say keyword Ben Shapiro to get started. Okay, so here is the story with Nancy Pelosi. So I'm assuming that people know the story, but the story is that she visited a San Francisco hair salon in person in defiance of local coronavirus restrictions. And then when she was caught on tape doing this, she then turned around and accused the business of setting her up. 
She accused the business of setting her up. I wasn't expecting the Marion Barry type full on. I've been set up when I was found with a, co- a briefcase full of cocaine in my room. But this is, this is pretty stellar stuff. So Nancy Pelosi, her net worth is, I believe, $300 million, something like that. Her husband is extraordinarily wealthy. And Nancy Pelosi is also the lady who was spotted on late night TV in the middle of a pandemic, standing in front of a sub-zero $20,000 fridge, eating custom-made gelato. But she's a woman of the people, right? She cares deeply about the people, does Nancy Pelosi. So finally, she was asked about this yesterday. And her initial response was not, yes, I'm a hypocrite. I, I understand a lot of businesses are suffering. I shouldn't have done that. You know, my, my better sense was overcome. Instead, she went after the business. She said that she takes responsibility for being set up, being set up. So Mary Antoinette has hired legal counsel. We'll get to that in a second. She actually hired a lawyer to put out a letter explaining that the business owner set her up. Here's Nancy Pelosi claiming that she was the victim of a setup when she scheduled an appointment at a hair salon in defiance of local coronavirus restrictions. Again, everyone in California knows about these restrictions. The notion that, that Nancy Pelosi is ignorant of the restrictions is patently crazy. I mean, really, really nuts. Everybody in California knows about this because everything's closed. You can drive down the street and you can see that everything is closed. Okay, and if you don't know the local restrictions, then what you, tend, uh, what you typically tend to do is call up the business owner and ask what the local restrictions are, not what they are doing, what the local restrictions are. And if you are one of the lawmakers who is the most pro-lockdown lawmakers in the United States, you would assume that at some point you might ask, oh, what are the local restrictions? She knows what they are. She just doesn't care because she's an important person. She's a VIP. All animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And Nancy Pelosi, Teeth of Clacken, is the most equal of all. So here's Nancy Pelosi explaining that she was set up. I can't believe they set me up, says Nancy Pelosi. I take responsibility for trusting uh, the word of a neighborhood salon that I've been to over the years many times. And that um, when they said, well, we're able to accommodate people one person at a time, and that we can set up that time. I trusted that. As it turns out, it was a setup. So I take responsibility for falling for a setup. I think that, they owe, <laughs> uh, that this salon owes me an apology. The salon owes her an apology. She takes responsibility for falling for a setup. It was a sting operation to get Nancy Pelosi. Now, um, it seems to me that as the Speaker of the House, she should probably know the local ordinances with regard to whether she's allowed to go to the local salon even by herself, considering they are all closed in the city of San Francisco. And that we have seen tents popping out on the sidewalks everywhere in California where people are getting their hair done outside. But now she's going to blame the business. The, the business owner, a woman named Erica Kias, she's the owner of eSalon. She blasted Pelosi on Fox News. She said it was a slap in the face. She went in, you know, that she feels she can just go and get her stuff done while no one else can go in and I can't work. We're supposed to look up to this woman, right? It's just disturbing. So she appeared did uh, Erica Kias on Tucker Carlson's show last night. And she said, well, no, I mean, this was not a setup. She's been coming in for quite a while and she set up the appointment herself or her assistant did. So I'm not sure how this is a setup exactly. She's been coming in for quite a while. And just to see her come in and especially not wearing the mask, that's what really got to me. But you know, this isn't even political. I mean, she's been coming in there. It's the fact that she actually came in and didn't have a mask on. And I just thought about, you know, my staff and people not being able to work and make money and provide for their families. And if she's in there comfortably without a mask and feeling safe, then why are we shut down? Why am I not able to have clients come in? So Nancy Pelosi responds to this by sicking her lawyers on the salon because she is not only an elitist to whom the rules don't apply, She also can afford very expensive lawyers to go after local business owners whose businesses are shut down. And the lawyer letter is so incredible because the lawyer letter basically says, look at this terrible businesswoman who behind closed doors has been doing business, which Nancy Pelosi was taking advantage of. Okay, I mean, that's that's wild and kind of hilarious. Pelosi's spokesperson, by the way, denied the original allegations. She told Fox News, well, Drew, Drew Hamill, her spokesman, told Fox News, quote, the speaker always wears a mask and complies with local COVID requirements. Wrongo, wrongo. But Hamill then continued, this business offered for the speaker to come in on Monday and told her they were allowed by the city to have one customer at a time in the business. The speaker complied with the rules as presented to her by this establishment. So, um, yeah, not, not, not too much, not too much. Okay, so we'll get to Nancy Pelosi sicking her daughter and her lawyer on this whole thing in just one second. It's pretty amazing. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let's talk about the fact that 
it is pretty easy to have your information stolen online. It's happened to me. I remember a couple of years ago before I started using ExpressVPN, I was online and suddenly I started getting charges from people buying super like like NFL tickets. And I thought to myself, I haven't been to an NFL game recently or maybe ever. And it turned out somebody had hacked my credit card information. Well, ExpressVPN helps prevent stuff like that. Not too long ago, over 100 million people had their personal information stolen in a major data breach. Social security numbers, contact details, credit scores, and more, all taken from Capital One customers. It's not just Capital One. Equifax, eBay, Uber, PlayStation, Yahoo, they've all had passwords leaked, credit card information leaked, bank numbers belonging to billions of users hacked. If you think hackers only target large companies, wrong. It's just that you don't have a giant IP, uh, you don't have a giant intellectual property department working for you, an IT department working for you to protect your data. That's why you need ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN, it's an app for your computer and phone. It secures and encrypts your data so you can have peace of mind every time you go online. The app connects with just one click. It's lightning fast. The best part, ExpressVPN costs less than seven bucks a month. Listen, if a breach can happen to Capital One, it can certainly happen to you. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Go check out expressvpn.com. They're the people I trust. Use my special link, expressvpn.com slash Ben right now. Arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Ben for an extra three months for free. The last thing you need is to have your information hacked. It's happened to me. I've used ExpressVPN. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen to me anymore. Go check them out. ExpressVPN.com slash Ben for an extra three months for free. Okay, so Nancy Pelosi has responded to this not just by claiming she was set up, but then she hired an attorney to write a letter to the salon threatening to sue. And so here is the letter from Matthew Solomonpour, Esquire. This office represents the interests of Jonathan Zanardo, a California certified cosmetologist based out of San Francisco, California. In response to press inquiries on the matter, then Mr. Donato can confirm that he did indeed provide professional stylist services to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on August 31st, 2020 at the E-Salon, located at 2288 Union Street in San Francisco, California. Mr. Donato at all times took all requisite safety measures throughout his appointment with Speaker Pelosi, including sanitation of all service areas and wearing of CDC-recommended protective equipment. Mr. Donato has worked at E-Salon for approximately six years and regularly communicates with the salon owner, Erica Kias. In fact, Mr. Donato received advance approval from Ms. Kias the day prior to the appointment during a telephone discussion on August 29th, 2020 at 9.26 p.m., wherein Mr. Donato advised Ms. Kias he would not proceed with Speaker Pelosi's appointment without Mr. Kias' authorization. Ms. Kias took special interest in the appointment during the telephone call, wherein she made several vitriolic and incendiary comments about Speaker Pelosi and her purported responsibility for temporarily suspending operations of Ms. Kias' business, despite such orders actually being put into place not by Pelosi, but by Governor Gavin Newsom and San Francisco Mayor London Breed. Ultimately, Kias authorized in order to proceed with Speaker Pelosi's appointment. This office is in possession of photographs, videos, and witness information that Ms. Kias prior, contrary to her prior statements to the press, has actually been operating her business during the stay-at-home orders and similar executive orders limiting in-store operations since as far back as April 2020. Okay, so now it is not only that Pelosi is suggesting that Kia said she could come in and then Kia's taped her and released the tape, which by the way is still not a sting operation because there's an obligation for Pelosi not to violate the law. Even if somebody says to you, you can come into my gym or my hair salon, it's totally full. We're operating you know, we're operating at full capacity. It is your responsibility not to violate the law, Speaker Pelosi. That's not how any of this works. You don't get to simply say, well, the business said it was okay, so it's probably okay. That is not how this works, especially not if you're Speaker of the House. Ignorance is not an excuse. By the way, she's not ignorant about any of this. But beyond that, she is now attempting to destroy the business of this person. Why? Well, she's going to now say, well, she was violating the orders all along. Okay, so here's the question. If your case is that she was violating the orders all along, then which is that bad or is that okay? Because you are also violating the orders. So either it was bad, in which case you are bad, or it was fine, in which case you should relieve the lockdowns in the first place. But instead, they're going to try and get Kias cited for violations by the local city government in response to Nancy Pelosi being complicit in the violations. According to this lawyer, again, the fact that Kias is now objecting to Speaker Pelosi's presence at the Isalon from a simple surface level review of Ms. Kias's political leanings, it appears Ms. Kias is furthering a setup of Speaker Pelosi for her own vain aspirations. Oh, yes. I, I, when I think of vain vanity aspirations, I think uh, I think of a, a local salon owner trying to keep her business owner. I don't think of the highly Botoxed, gelato-eating, Sub-Zero standing in front of hair-dry Speaker of the House who has to appear on MSNBC that night because the rules don't apply to people like Nancy Pelosi. Uh, good, good stuff right there. Very, very good stuff. And here's the thing. It is this elitist attitude toward fellow Americans that is built into so much of our politics. It is not just about Nancy Pelosi. It's also built into the issues surrounding race 
in the United States. So much of our racial conversation right now, the racial conversation that is driving incredible wedges in the United States. Let's not pretend that the racial conversations that are happening right now are productive. They're not productive. They're not helpful. They're not productive. They've not made America better. By polling data, black and white are more separated than at any time in modern recent history. And there is a reason for that. It's because the racial conversations that are happening right now are predicated on the very basic notion that unless you are an elitist white liberal who has dissociated from your own white supremacy, then you can't be part of the conversation. And in fact, the people who ought to be leading this conversation are those people, are the elitist white liberals. They're the ones with the work to do, which means moral authority and responsibility lies with them. And this is how you end up with all of these incredibly wealthy, powerful white liberals who are now putting out these kind of Maoist struggle session statements, talking about their own racism, dissociating from other white Americans who presumably are just the little people, right? The little people who are implicitly racist. Let me tell you something. The The unemployed welder in Appalachia is not sitting around thinking about his white privilege today. You know why? Because that person doesn't have white privilege. That person doesn't have a lot of privilege at all, in fact. It turns out that the very basic notion of white privilege is being substituted for what is commonly known as class privilege, meaning it is better to be wealthy than it is to be poor. But instead, we have decided to speak solely in terms of race because what that what does that allow? It allows white, rich liberals to pretend that they are not at the top of the hierarchy. Then, in fact, if they disassociate, they can be they can be granted moral authority once more. And this is how you end up with Chelsea Clinton going around talking about how she wants her white children of privilege to erode that privilege. Moral authority being conferred once again on Chelsea Clinton. Now, Chelsea Clinton does have privilege. It doesn't have to do with her race. It has to do with the fact that she is the daughter of a president and the former secretary of state and and near second near first female president, right? Chelsea Clinton is one of the most privileged people in the history of America, but that is not because she is white. There are plenty of people who are white who are not privileged the way that Chelsea Clinton is privileged. But here's the thing. By suggesting that she is suffering from white privilege, she then gets to be the good white person. She doesn't get to be the person who, she doesn't have to be the person who is condemned for living an elitist life while dictating rules to everybody else. She gets to disassociate from the other white people who are the bad white people, while she, the cream of the crop, gets to dictate rules for everybody else on behalf of white people everywhere. So here's Chelsea Clinton speaking on behalf of white people everywhere, and also suggesting that she's going to indoctrinate her children into this cultish belief in racial essentialism. In states where there haven't been kind of um, no excuse absentee voting or where there you know, hasn't been the introduction of early voting yet, you know, it still isn't um, kind of easy, fair or equal for many Americans to vote. I think it's really important that my children understand that. And I think it's particularly important that they understand that as white children of privilege, because I want them to erode that privilege throughout their lives to ensure more people are enfranchised. And that equality isn't just an ideal. Okay, and then she's talking to Ayanna Presley, who promptly taps her on the head and confers the the wand of magic anti-racism upon her and says, you're really modeling that which my mother certainly believed, which is that a parent is a child's first teacher. I appreciate you're providing that full education. We know that often there's a revisionist history, a sanitizing, a filtering of history that does not tell the whole story, confronting that past. That's really how we get to truth and reconciliation. No, it isn't. No, it isn't, because that's not what you're talking about doing. You're not talking about you're not talking about looking at American history with an eye toward all of the dark parts. You're talking about completely rewriting American history so that America is thoroughly racist, except for wonderful people like Ayanna Presley, who has ultimate racial privilege in terms of how she gets to speak about race, and Chelsea Clinton, who now gets to enter that coterie of people we should listen to because she has disassociated from other white people and alleviated her own internalized white guilt. In a second, we're going to get to more of this elitist perspective on race, because most Americans, I think, who are not elitist don't tend to walk around thinking about their race all day. I think the people who are thinking about race the most are the people at the top of the intellectual hierarchy, the people who graduated from the good schools and got indoctrinated in their in their critical studies theory. And, and now they are the ones who are determining what the moral standard should be for everybody else. There's, a, there's an elitism when it comes to discussions of race that is completely separated from the realities of everyday human beings in the United States. We'll get to that in just one second. First, let us talk about the fact that hiring can be very difficult without any assistance. It's really hard. I mean, very difficult because, again, you have to sift through a ton of resumes. Many of them are not very good. You can't remember where you even put the resumes. It's hard to keep track of all this stuff. And you might not even be soliciting resumes from the right crowd. This is why you need ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter will send your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then actively invites them to apply to your job. 
ZipRecruiter makes hiring efficient and effective with features like screening questions to filter out candidates and an all-in-one dashboard where you can review and rate your candidates as well. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the very first day. I mean, assume for a second that you had a, a producer and that producer was supposed to send you ads but they were supposed to do it like well before the show and they only did it like two seconds before the show or maybe even in the middle of the show. And then you were suddenly supposed to come up with the ads on your own. And this happened like every single day. Well, then you might go to producer Colton and say, listen, ZipRecruiter is for you. ZipRecruiter, you can try it for free. My listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash D-A-I-L-Y-W-I-R-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. ZipRecruiter is indeed the smartest way to hire. Okay, so again, this view of race in America is being driven very often by the elitists. So singer Demi Lovato is now opening up about the shame she feels for her white privilege and how she changed her social advocacy because she's one of the good ones, right? She's an elitist. She gets to determine how we all think about race, which is really, really exciting stuff. Now, I think the way that normal people generally ought to think about race is that race is not a primary, secondary, or tertiary consideration in how you determine the worth of another human being. And this, this also happened to be the perspective on racism for a long time in the United States before we decided that racial essentialism was the key and that implicitly we all judge each other based on race and thus we must think in terms of how to elevate groups rather than how to grant rights for individuals. So now Demi Lovato, she's separated off from her racial privilege and she too gets to be one of the elitist coterie who does, the, the rules don't apply to her. She can talk about race as freely as she wants to talk about it because she has now been conferred legitimacy by Vogue magazine. So she wrote in Vogue and she lamented for several paragraphs her own ongoing struggles and then she started talking about race. She says, looking back on 2020, it's been a year of great change that helped her realize how much more she should be doing to help other people. She said, I've always taken my advocacy work seriously. Now I'm looking at it with renewed focus. In this particular instance, what motivated me was knowing how much of myself comes from black culture. I grew up listening to Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, and other soulful singers. But those two black women in particular shaped me into the vocalist I am. If you look at my life, everything I have, money, success, a roof over my head, it's because of the inspiration those black women gave me. I continue to be constantly inspired by people of color today. So here I am, sitting in a home I was able to afford with the money that I have from singing while people of color are fearing for their lives every day. I realized this was a lightning bolt jolting through my body where I was reminded of my privilege. I felt an overwhelming responsibility to help spread awareness about this injustice. So I began posting things I thought would educate people. All I knew was that, was that I hated that I shared the same skin color as the people accused of committing heinous crimes against Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and many, many other black lives. After taking some time to educate myself, what I've learned is that to be a good ally, you need to be willing to protect people at all costs. And it's not just with Black Lives Matter, it's with me too. Finally, the world is waking up. So th this is the way this works, is that the elitists in our society get to determine exactly how we ought to view questions of race. And there are, and this has become implicit in the Democratic Party agenda. It's not just elitist views of COVID where the rules don't apply to them. If you're a Democratic politician, the rules don't apply to you either. So if you're Joe Biden, you could be called a racist by Kamala Harris a year ago, and now you're a leader on racial justice issues. How? Well, you just declared that America is systemically racist, and now you are dedicated to fighting that systemic racism. Now, as I have pointed out, the shift in definition from racism to systemic racism is wrong, stupid, and ugly. Okay, racism was originally defined as the belief in the inferiority or superiority of a group of people based on race. That was the definition of racism. And you could tell a racist policy if it distinguished based on race. You could tell a racist if a racist did a racist thing. But then in the 1960s, the definition of race shifted and racism particularly shifted. Stokely Carmichael, who became the head of the Black Panther Party, Stokely Carmichael, originally one of the heads of, uh, of uh, another prominent civil rights organization, and then he became radicalized. He, he redefined racism. He, he said that racism actually was any system that creates inequality. And this is exactly the argument that is made today. See, I don't think the American people understand what definitional shift has happened here. I think that the American people look at phrases and they, un they identify the word they understand and then they forget the modifier. So you see this happen with social justice. People say, yeah, I'm for social justice. And what they think they mean is they're just for justice. They don't understand that the word social has now modified the word justice. So justice, when most people think about it, justice is just about an individual getting what they deserve. Social justice is about a group getting what the quote unquote group deserves in spite of what the individual actually deserves. So social justice is actually in many ways the opposite of individual justice. The same thing is true of racial justice or environmental justice. Whenever you add a modifier to justice, what you're actually doing is shifting the definition from an inherently individual definition of justice 
to another definition of justice that implicitly condones injustice against individuals. Okay, the same thing happens when you're talking about racism. So racism is bad, right? Racism is wrong because racism, again, is defined as the belief in the inferiority or superiority of a group of people based solely on race. That is the definition of racism. Systemic racism is the suggestion that you don't actually have to be conscious of your own racism. You don't have to be a racist. You don't have to have done anything racist. You don't have to be complicit in a quote-unquote racist policy that is directed specifically at subjugating people of a particular race. You don't have to do any of that. Systemic racism is the idea that any system that creates any inequality between races is in fact racist. And if you are complicit in that system, then even if you are not a racist, you are complicit in racism. Right? You're basically like a brown shirt in the Nazi system. There are no good Germans, or if there are good Germans, then they are complicit in the Nazi system. The same thing is true of systematically racist and systemically racist systems. So systemic has now completely shifted the definition of racism to the point where you are now personally held responsible for systems, even if you yourself have not done anything wrong. Thomas Sowell recently suggested we have now reached a point in American life where nobody is held responsible for the decisions they make, but everybody is held responsible for the decisions others make. And I think that that is basically correct. And this is the perspective taken up by the elitists. Because one of the beautiful things about being an elitist is that you have relieved yourself of individual responsibility by condemning the system. And now you get to reshape the entire system because you have condemned the system. And you also get to ignore the plight of individuals. You don't have to focus in on individuals. You get to, because again, focus on individuals places responsibility where it truly lies with people making individual decisions. Focus on systems, especially free systems, tends to result in your ability to shirk your own responsibility for your own actions. And instead, you get to campaign against systems from which you can dissociate, which is a very self-esteem boosting way of viewing the world. And it's one of the reasons why the Democratic Party has fully embraced this sort of language. So Joe Biden recently put out an ad. The ad that he put out was all about how black Americans are systemically discriminated against in the United States. Now, Joe Biden Again, five seconds ago, he was being called a racist by Kamala Harris, but now he's one of the goodies because he dissociated from the systemic racism of the American system that he implicitly wants to preserve and run. Here was this ad from, from the Biden campaign. Why in this nation do black Americans wake up knowing that they could lose their life in the course of just living their life? Part of the point of freedom is to be free from brutality, from injustice, from racism and all of its manifestations. We have to let people know that we not only understand their struggle, but they understand the fact they deserve to be treated with dignity. They gotta know we're listening. Reforming policing in this country means creating a national standard on use of force. Okay, again, the the original statement here, before she gets to the policing reform that the Democrats shot down, when Tim Scott, the black senator from South Carolina, who's a Republican, proposed it, the actual thing they're pushing here is, again, the idea that you are in implicit danger if you're a black person in America. That is not true. There are 42, black, 42 million black people living in the United States. The number of unarmed black people who are shot and killed every year by the police numbers every year under 20 out of 42 million people. That doesn't mean that the police aren't sometimes brutal. There are cases where the police engage in police brutality and there are investigations of that. And there should be investigations of that. But again, the widespread narrative here is the elitist narrative on race, which is that only the elitists can solve. That the hard work of racial tolerance isn't done on the individual level where you work and you work to train your kids so that they treat everybody equally and they treat everybody well. Instead, the hard work is done at the top level by the elitists who get to control the entire system. That is the implicit message here. So we'll get to more of this in just one second because it's fairly obvious that the facts do not matter. If you are of the belief that that narrative is the case, then you don't even have to care about the individual facts of particular police situations. You can simply label the entire system racist. And as we'll see, that's exactly what Joe Biden has been doing to truly ugly effect. We'll get to that in one moment. First, let us talk about the fact that, you know, these days, a lot of people thinking about life insurance. I mean, we got a COVID pandemic. We've got riots in America's major cities. We've got increased shootings. Like, it's a pretty dark time in American history. And a lot of people are thinking, can I even get life insurance? The answer, of course, is you can indeed get life insurance. I have life insurance. You should have life insurance if you're a responsible human being. And Policy Genius is the easiest and best way to get life insurance. Right now, you could save 1500 bucks or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. When you're shopping for a policy that could last for a decade or more, those savings really start to add up. What is Policy Genius? Well, it's an insurance marketplace built and backed by a team of industry experts. Here's how it works. Step one, you head on over to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Step two, you can apply for your lowest price. Step three, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance company. So 
If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, they'll take care of everything for you. They even have policies that allow eligible customers to skip that in-person medical exam and do it over the phone, which these days is really, really convenient. If you need life insurance, head on over to policygenius.com right now to get started. You could save 1500 bucks or more per year by comparing quotes on their insurance marketplace, Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice and important to get it right. Okay, we're going to get to more of this in just one second. The, the elitist narrative on race being fostered by NPR, being fostered by the Biden campaign, and it has real consequences for real people living in the United States, particularly and disproportionately minority Americans. We'll get to that in a second. First, as part of our Daily Wire audience, there are a number of ways you can take in the podcast. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or another podcast app. You can also watch our podcast on YouTube, Facebook, over at dailywire.com. Here's the bottom line. We are making our content available to you anywhere you watch or listen. And right now, we're introducing a new upgraded experience. Daily Wire is now on Apple TV and Roku, so members can enjoy all of the magnificent visual elements of this podcast on your big screen, either live or on demand. Find The Daily Wire on Apple TV or Roku and download today. You have to be an insider member to watch live, so head on over to dailywire.com slash Shapiro. Use code WATCH at checkout to get 15% off your membership purchase. The deal's not going to last long, so act fast if you want live shows on your big screen, plus the one-of-a-kind, highly coveted leftist tears tumbler. Ooh, ah. Again, that is dailywire.com slash Shapiro to get 15% off with code WATCH. And download The Daily Wire on your Apple TV and Roku today. Another big announcement for you, gang. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special. It's back and better than ever this week with an all-new episode featuring Candace Owens. Ooh, I know a lot of people have been clamoring for this. We'll be talking about the 2020 election, George Floyd, Cardi B, and tons of other good stuff. So do not miss out. This Sunday, September 6th, you're listening to the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so again, the, the view of the elitists in the United States is that they get to set the standard for everybody else and they have to do the hard work. Just give them all the power and they will fix everything. That's the logic here. Right? The systems are wrong. But you, the little, the, the peons, you can't fix the systems. Only the people at the top can fix the systems. And the systems don't apply to them because they've dissociated from the systems. So Nancy Pelosi doesn't have to abide by COVID rules. She's a special. Joe Biden doesn't have to abide by any of the rules of racism. He can ra- randomly walk around the United States talking about how Indian people all own 7-Elevens. Yes, that's a thing he did. And he's totally... It's fine. It's fine. The system doesn't apply to him because he is separate from the system, because he is a part, because he is better. He's above the system. Our elitists, they run the system. You, the peons, you just get peed on. And what this means is that if you are Joe Biden, then you really don't ever have to examine the facts of any particular case or treat people as individuals. What this really means, in essence, when elitists set the system is that individuals don't matter. They get to set how you live because they are important and you are not and they know better because they are rich and because they are smart and because they are famous and because they've been thrust into positions of power. Okay, so yesterday, Joe Biden finally does a press conference. It's a very bizarre press conference. It's bizarre because he doesn't actually call on people the way that President Trump does. He can say a lot of things about Trump, but Trump has done a lot of pressers. He'll stand out there. He'll answer questions for hours. Dude loves the attention from the media. Joe Biden has been hiding in his hidey hole. He's been he's been doing the spider hole thing. And, and now he emerges like the groundhog once every six weeks or so, and we determine whether there are another several weeks of winter or not, he emerges. He doesn't actually just point to people in the crowd. Instead, they have a pre-selected list of people who are attending these press conferences, and then the staff calls on these people. And so, as we will see, when asked a tough question, Biden had no answer to it. We'll get to that in a second. But here is Joe Biden's take on the Jacob Blake and Breonna Taylor cases. As I say, the reason this is indicative of a broader mindset is because If you believe the system of policing in the United States is inherently racist, you never have to consider the individual facts of the case. Joe Biden is set to go to Kenosha today. He's going to meet with the family of Jacob Blake. Forget the fact that Jacob Blake Sr., the the person he's meeting with, is apparently like a rabid (laughs) anti-Semite. There there are a bunch of social media posts that have come out. But frankly, that's that's not super important, other than it's very awkward for, for Biden, but I guess not so awkward. The real problem is, why is he meeting with the family of a guy who who was they, they attempted to arrest him because a woman called the police. That woman had been an alleged prior victim of sexual assault by Jacob Blake. She called the cops because he allegedly broke into her home and sexually violated her with his finger while her children were asleep in the same room. She called the cops. The cops arrive. He attempts to avoid arrest. He attempts to resist arrest. He walks around to the driver's side of his car. He reaches in and a knife is found on the floorboard of the driver's side of his car. There are three kids in the back of the car. And... They're the bad guy. According to Joe Biden, those officers should just be charged. Based on what evidence? We don't know. According to Joe Biden, the Breonna Taylor officer should be charged. Does not matter that 
a tragic situation does not necessarily mean somebody did anything criminal. In the Breonna Taylor case, they had a 39-page supporting document that suggested that Breonna Taylor was in fact involved with her ex-boyfriend's drug trafficking. There's a lot of supporting evidence to this. They took out a no-knock warrant on that basis. There's no evidence the police officers thought that that no-knock warrant was fraudulent. They did knock, according to the police officers. They did knock, in fact. And then after they knocked, the people inside said they didn't announce themselves. After they knocked, then they started to force the door, as a no-knock warrant would suggest. They were shot at by Breonna Taylor's current boyfriend, at which point they tried to shoot the boyfriend, and instead they hit Breonna Taylor. That's a tragic, terrible situation, but that is not necessarily a criminal situation. In fact, it's very difficult to think of a way you could charge the officers in that case. Nonetheless, because the facts of the case don't matter, Joe Biden is now suggesting that all of these officers should be charged. Why? Because while Joe Biden insists that cops are mostly good, they work for a systemically racist system, of course. Here was Joe Biden pushing this message yesterday. Last week, your running mate, Senator Harris, said that uh, the officer who shot Jacob Blake, based on what she has seen, should be charged. Do you agree with her? And do you also believe the same for the officers who were involved in the death of Breonna Taylor? I think we should let the, uh, the judicial system work its way. I do think there's a minimum need to be charged, the officers, and as well as Breonna Taylor. So we should let the judicial system work its magic, but also they should be charged. That's not how the judicial, judicial system works. What, why, why should they be charged? You just said you wanted the process to work, but then you said you don't want the process to work because they should be charged in the absence of evidence. Because again, the system is bad. You know, sometimes I think that people on the right are, are engaged in a fool's errand trying to actually do the work sometimes. It's not just people on the right, anybody with a semblance of brain power. That we are, we are engaged in a fool's errand trying to actually distinguish between cases when people like Joe Biden are suggesting no distinctions are necessary. And this is one of my pet peeves is the suggestion by people like Joe Biden that people like Michael Brown were innocent victims of the cops. And they lump in Michael Brown with Ahmed Arbery, who's actually the victim of a murder. Right? Like, why, why exactly are all these cases lumped together? Because again, the implicit answer is it's the system and people like Joe Biden should run the system so they can run your life too. We shouldn't treat people as individuals. This is how you end up with the media treating two very separate cases very similarly today. So there were big protests in Washington, D.C. Last night, there was a, a black man named Dion Kay who was shot and he was killed in Washington, D.C. He was shot and killed because apparently he was riding around the neighborhood and wielding a gun. And then he brandished a firearm and pointed it at the cops. And then he was shot. Okay, so that and then they, they, they released pictures of the handguns that, that had been found on the on the people uh, who were running away from the police. That case has prompted a lot of angst in Washington, D.C., that seems to me a particularly non-controversial case. But then there are actual controversial cases that require serious attention and are getting serious attention because we still live in a country with individual justice and due process of law. So for example, there's a case out of Rochester, New York. It looks really ugly on the face of it in which there was a black man named Daniel Prude who apparently was high on PCP according to the coroner's report and was acting crazy. And his brother apparently called the police. He was 41. Uh, he was running around Rochester, New York in the middle of winter, completely naked. The police arrive and they arrest him. And the tape is really disturbing because they arrest him. He appears to be basically complying, but he is delusional. And he suggests that he wants to take their guns, but he's not really making a move toward it. They, they put a spit bag over his head. This is, the middle of, this is the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. So this happened back all the way in March. They put a, a spit bag over his head. Those are breathable, apparently. And, um, and then he starts to kind of move and they jump on top of him and he stops breathing. Right. So it's a, it's a bad situation all around like this is an actual controversial case, but we're not supposed to distinguish between cases. We're supposed to pretend that all the cases are exactly the same. Well, you know what a rational country would do? You know what rational people would do again on race, on, on COVID, on everything. We would treat people individually, but we don't. We treat people collectively so the powerful can run our lives. Uh, here's a tape of, an, of a, a situation that requires investigation and, in fact, is, in fact, being investigated right now. Okay, there is an investigation that is that is taking place. So here's a little bit of this tape. It's disturbing. Get on the ground, man. Look. Get on the ground. Put your hands behind your back. So there he is complying. He puts his hands behind move. his back. Don't move. Completely naked and it's snowing in winter. I mean it. They put the spit bag over his head. He doesn't like the spit bag. He becomes very agitated. They're standing around. At one point he sits up and, uh, and so they put him back down on the ground and then they uh, subdue him. And they hold him down. And he's held down on the ground, and then eventually he stops breathing. The EMTs arrive on site. 
uh, he's using a knee. Uh, that's because, again, by most police department uses of force, if somebody's in an excited delirium state, this is a, a way of subduing the person. But did, did he need to be subdued that way? Who the he- I'm going to go no on that, right? I mean, this looks somewhat like George Floyd. Now, in this case, the actual coroner's report, unlike the George Floyd case where they said that asphyxiation had uh, nothing to do with it, in this particular case, um, the suggestion was that asphyxiation did have something to do with it. The medical examiner ruled the death a homicide by complications of asphyxia in the setting of physical restraint. Worth noting, the Rochester police chief, Leron Singletary, who is black, said, this is not a cover-up. We released the tape. And, uh, and Letitia James, who's the New York AG, she said, the death of Daniel Prude was a tragedy. I extend my deepest condolences to the family. I share the community's concerns about ensuring a fair and independent investigation into his death and support their right to protest. We will follow the facts of the case, ensure a complete and thorough examination of all the relevant parties. Okay, now that is the way that normally we should treat justice, but I guarantee you that all of these cases will be treated the same, always and forever. Because again, the elitists have to control this thing top down, and individual justice requires that there be due process and people be treated individually and cases be treated individually. That's a bad case that requires serious, thorough investigation. It is not the same as some of the other cases that have been cited and lumping them all together is just a way of promoting a collectivist narrative that is at odds with reality. By the way, there, there are consequences to that collectivist narrative. Some consequences, including elitists in our society declaring that looting is okay. So I told you earlier this week that NPR published a long interview with Vicki Osterweil, who's the author of a book called In Defense of Looting, a riotous history of uncivil action. NPR summarized the book as an argument that looting is a powerful tool to bring about real lasting change in society. So upscale white lady is defending looting, which disproportionately affects minority communities. Graham Wood is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He actually quotes the book and the book is insane. And it was given the, the, it was given the wonderful massage oils treatment by NPR. According to Graham Wood, looting is good, says Osterweil, because it exposes a deep truth about the great American con game, which is that without police and without state oppression, we can have things for free. The book was written in love and solidarity with looters the world over. She says that the so-called United States was founded in cis-heteropatriarchal racial capitalist violence, and that produced the current system. Looting rejects the legitimacy of ownership rights and property, the moral injunction to work for a living, and the justice of law and order. Ownership of things is innately, structurally white supremacist. So the remedy is violence. The destruction of business is, quote, an experience of pleasure, joy, and freedom. Riots are violent, extreme, and female as F, according to Osterweil. They rip, tear, burn, and destroy to give birth to a new world. She says that Martin Luther King Jr. is kind of a positive figure, but definitely would have been more of a positive figure if uh, if people had gotten hurt. She calls the I Have a Dream speech quote, the product of a series of sellouts and silencings of nonviolent leaders dampening the militancy of the grassroots. She's more of a fan of Asada Shakur, who murdered a New Jersey police officer. So good stuff. Osterweil quotes Stokely Carmichael, again, the creator of the institutional racism, systemic racism argument, quote, responsibility for the use of violence by black men, whether in self-defense or initiated by them, lies with the white community. So Osterweil, again, pushing this elitist narrative, she gets to make the rules and gets to overthrow the systems that allow for individual freedom in in pursuit of a narrative that leaves elitists with power. Now, the funny thing about this is, of course, the elitists in power end up being eaten by the exact sort of phenomenon they're pushing. And this is how you end up with the St. Louis mayor now vacating his home thanks to the protests in St. Louis. Uh, Sorry, her home, rather. So if these protests are nonviolent and everything is hunky-dory and it's really just about the system, why do we now have mayors running away from their houses? We just had Mayor Ted Wheeler of Portland abandoning his condo because people were firing fireworks at it. Now we have St. Louis Mayor Lita Krusen, who is who has left her home, fled her home. She's temporarily relocated after a string of protests at her central West End home. She confirmed she and her husband have been living in an apartment in the central West End. She said, we did it to escalate the situation, to de-escalate the situation, to save police resources, and importantly, because our neighbors were being disturbed and threatened. So well done everywhere. Well, like this is just, this is all, it's all solid stuff. The problem with the elitists is that the elitists think that they can control the system. And indeed, the system ends up controlling them. It turns out that violating the, the laws of rule and order and then overthrowing them in favor of a new birth of revolution, the people who think they're going to run that thing end up being the first people to the guillotines. And that is what you're watching, in essence, play out. Okay, meanwhile, President Trump has been taking action against some of this stuff. So President Trump has now ordered the federal government, he has ordered the executive branch 
to begin the process of cutting funds to, quote unquote, lawless cities that have cut their police budgets. According to Ryan Saavedra reporting for Daily Wire, President Trump has reportedly ordered the federal government to initiate a review that could result in the defunding of four Democrat-controlled cities that have allowed lawless behavior to transpire during the protests and that have moved to cut the police while violent crime has surged. Trump said in a memo, quote, my administration will not allow federal tax dollars to fund cities that allow themselves to deteriorate into lawless zones. To ensure that federal funds are neither unduly wasted nor spent in a manner that directly violates our government's promise to protect life, liberty, and property, it is imperative that the federal government review the use of federal funds by jurisdictions that permit anarchy, violence, and destruction in America's cities. The order targets New York City, Portland, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. The memo also instructs A.G. William Barr to compile a list of, quote, anarchist jurisdictions that have, quote, permitted violence and the destruction of property to persist and have refused to undertake reasonable measures to restore order. Now, listen, I'm a federalist, which means that I believe in local rule. It is also true the federal government routinely attaches strings to funds that go to local government. So if you want the feds to sign the check, then, I mean, this has been long a tool of American federal policy. The memo states that New York Democrat Governor Andrew Cuomo and New York City Democratic Mayor Bill, Bill de Blasio, quote, allowed violence to spike while resisting the president's offer to send in federal law enforcement. While violence has surged, arrests have plummeted, the memo says. In a 28-day period during the months of June and July, New York City arrests were down 62% from the same period in 2019. Amidst the rising violence, Bill de Blasio and the New York City Council agreed to cut $1 billion from the NYPD and canceled the hiring of 1,163 officers. The memo also states that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser allowed rioters and anarchists to engage in violence and destruction in late May and early June, requiring me to call in the National Guard to maintain law and order in the nation's capital. New York City receives nearly $7 billion per year in federal aid. Uh, that could be on the table. Hey, this is also ticked off Mayor Ted Wheeler. I love this. Mayor Ted Wheeler tweeted out, Trump threatens to withdraw federal funds, possibly including health, education, and safety net dollars Americans need to get through the pandemic and economic crisis. Again, he targets cities, including ours, with Democratic mayors, which he calls, quote-unquote, anarchist jurisdictions. Literally, this man had to abandon his condo because of the anarchy he has allowed to thrive in his own city. Well, all of this prompted Andrew Cuomo, your wonderful governor of New York, to literally threaten the president with violence. So it, it is amazing. This guy is, is incredible. He is, he is the greatest governor in the history of the United States, according to the media. He carries a 70% approval rating in a state where he killed 11,000 seniors and still refuses to hand over the stats on nursing home deaths. Here was Andrew Cuomo suggesting that uh, Trump better have an army if he comes to New York City. He can't come back to New York. He can't. He's going to walk down the street in New York. Forget bodyguards. He better have an army if he thinks he's going to walk down the street in New York. From the point of view of New York City, this has been the worst president in history. Look, the best thing he did for New York City was leave. Good riddance. Let him go to Florida. Be careful not to get COVID. Uh, what, a, what a nice guy. Remember, this is the nice guy, the, the wonderful Andrew Cuomo, making death mountains out of paper mache to demonstrate his own amazing performance on COVID. All angry because the feds aren't going to continue sending checks to a state that he is mishandling and, and running incredibly poorly. I've been told, by the way, that only Trump has raised the temperature here. Only Trump has raised the temperature. It doesn't matter that Nancy Pelosi has engaged in violent rhetoric or that Andrew Cuomo openly suggests that President Trump might get assassinated if he walks the streets of New York City. He's going to need an army in order to walk through New York City. Which, by the way, like, what's that what is that intended to do? Do you think that Trump is then going to declare that you have law and order in charge of your city? Like literally, Trump is like, you don't have law and order. Your city's an anarchist jurisdiction. And the response is, if he comes here, he's going to get shot by people. It seems like you're sort of making Trump's case for him there, Andrew, just a little bit. So, you know, Trump's action on this uh, is uh, well taken and certainly better taken than a lot of the uh, narrative issues that are being pursued by Democrats rather than uh, justice for individuals. Well, that's not to suggest that everything is going well in Trump land. So yesterday, the president was speaking and he was talking about mailing and, and mail-in voting. And uh, he suggested that people should vote twice in order to, in order to test the mail-in system. So he, he's not really saying that you should actually physically go and vote twice. What he is saying is, if you have so much faith in the system, you shouldn't mind if people vote twice. If you think mail-in balloting is wonderful, then why exactly would it be a problem for anybody to do this? People are, of course, taking this as though Trump was deliberately instructing people to go vote twice. Here was what Trump had to say. Let him send it in and let him go vote. And if the system's as good as they say it is, then obviously they won't be able to vote. If it isn't calculated, they'll be able to vote. So that's the way it is. And that's what they should do. 
Okay, so is is Trump really urging people vote twice, violate federal law? No, he's not. But is it irresponsible language? Of course. And what Trump should say there is is a slightly different version of that, which is the system. The system. They're saying that it's foolproof and everything is totally fine. You have to show voter ID. You can vote any which way from Sunday. That's going to lead to a lot of chaos. And if, in fact, people voted twice, then it could lead to significantly more chaos. They're obviously not that confident. I mean, there's a reason why we have federal crimes on the books to prevent people from voting twice. Trump instead goes where Trump always goes. Okay, well, this prompted Bill Barr, the AG, to be asked about all of this, about Trump encouraging supporters to supposedly vote illegally twice. Here was Bill Barr's answer on CNN. Now, Bill Barr has a typical strategy when asked about Trump, which is he pretends Trump doesn't exist, which, by the way, is the strategy of most of the Trump officials. Whenever Trump says something ridiculous, they'll just be like, yeah, whatever, that's Trump saying stuff, which, by the way, is still the attitude of most Americans toward the stuff that Trump says. Here was Bill Barr doing that. Well, I don't know exactly what he was saying, but it seems to me what he's saying is he's trying to make the point that uh, the ability to monitor this system is, is not good. And, and if it was so good, if you tried to vote a second time, you would be caught if you voted in person. That, that would be illegal least. if they did that. If somebody mailed in a ballot and then actually showed up uh, to vote in person, uh, that would be illegal. I don't know what the law in the particular state says. You can't vote twice. Well, I don't know what the law in the particular state says and when that vote becomes final. Is there any state that says you can vote twice? Well, there's some, you know, maybe that you can change your vote up to a particular time. I don't know what the law That's- is. Okay, that, that, is, uh, that is awkward. But what Barr is saying there is he doesn't know if you send an absentee ballot and then you go vote. If they don't finalize one of the ballots, is that illegal? Okay, bottom line here is that Trump shouldn't have said what he said, but it is pretty obvious that he's not actually telling people go vote twice. He's actually saying, if you guys are so confident in the system, why would you have a problem with anybody voting twice? This led the uh, estimable Chris Cuomo, when he's not telling Michael Cohen not to trust the media and that he's been accused of sexual harassment, uh, is uh, interviewing his brother, the greatest governor in America, uh, about his nostril size. Here's Chris Cuomo going off on Bill Barr. It's a federal law. Would you like me to read it to you? La, la, la. I happen to have it. You can look it up. You're not allowed to vote twice. Like You need me to tell you that. Can you believe the attorney general of the United States is playing dumb about something like that? And why? Just to help his boy. Because he's a trumpet. He's a pawn. As opposed to, you know, other AGs who are completely nonpartisan. Now, again, Bill Barr should just say it's illegal to vote twice. It is illegal to vote twice, is my understanding. Um, but yeah, again, the, the, the media's outsized attention paid to Trump riffing. It, it, the narrative is always Trump riffing is 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 the end of the world. Now, should, again, should Trump say that sort of stuff? Of course, Trump shouldn't say that stuff. We have all sorts of confusion about this. You know, it's a bigger problem to me. Universal mail-in voting itself. Here was Bill Barr yesterday slamming universal mail-in voting. This is a much more important commentary by Bill Barr yesterday. This is a, you know, sort of cheap talk to get around the fundamental problem, which is the bipartisan commission chaired by Jimmy Carter and James Baker said back in 2009 that mail-in voting is fraught with the risk of fraud and coercion. But since then, and, there have been until a lot this of admin- no, and, well, sorry, that have improved it. Let me talk. Yeah, please. Uh, and since, this, since that time, there have been, in the newspapers, in networks, academic studies saying it is open to fraud and coercion. The only time the narrative changed is after this administration came in. Okay, Barr happens to be exactly correct about this, but of course the media are all in favor of universal mail-in balloting because they believe that it will help Democrats. They're going to focus in on Trump saying a dumb thing about voting twice, which nobody's going to take him up on. Meanwhile, suggesting that voter fraud literally doesn't occur and universal mail-in voting is no problem at all, which I I, I don't understand how a media that suggests voter fraud is nearly impossible and doesn't occur anyway, why are they so deeply upset, even if Trump said what they say he says? Like, Trump shouldn't say it because he shouldn't encourage people to commit crimes, obviously, but apparently the system is so safe that it's not a problem anyway. So there we are. That that, that is where things stand. You know, the president shouldn't step on himself in all of this. It is is a mistake to do so. Never interrupt your opponents when they're making a mistake. Right now, Democrats are making all sorts of mistakes. Uh, The president shouldn't involve himself in making exactly the same kind of mistakes. All righty, we'll be back later today for two additional hours of content. Joe Biden is set to visit Kenosha, so we'll bring you updates on him visiting the family of a man who was shot apparently justifiably by police going for a knife in his car after having allegedly raped a woman. So we'll see how that goes. And we'll bring you all the updates. You're listening to The Ben Shapiro Show. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Andrew Clavin Show, The Michael Moles Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. Thanks for listening. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Colton Haas. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producers are Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Assistant director, Pava Wydowski. Our associate producer is Nick Sheehan. The show is edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. Liberal elites double down on white guilt. Nancy Pelosi attacks the salon owner who caught her breaking lockdown rules. And Bill Barr exposes the truth about mail-in voting. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. While tackling your New Year's goals, don't forget about your daily dose of fruits and vegetables, which just got easier to remember thanks to Balance of Nature. Their fruit and veggie capsules offer a convenient way to consume those essential nutritional ingredients daily. So improve your diet and feel your best this year. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code WIRE for 35% off, plus a free fiber and spice in your first order as a preferred customer. That's balanceofnature.com, promo code WIRE.